Welcome to The Burning Word, a podcast that invites you to return to the Word and encounter God again. So we've been going through this sort of sideways series on St. Augustine and his confessions. So we've been looking at the crisis of identity. And now, only now, at the end of the confessions, as we look at the final two books, books 12 and 13, we actually are going to return to the scriptures themselves. Augustine, in an unexpected and somewhat bold move, is going to take you back to the book of Genesis at the very end of his story. And there's something, as with the whole confessions, profound going on here. As Augustine, in trying to understand his life, the beginning and the end, and the new potential of where his life is going, is going to, by necessity, take us all the way back to the very beginning of creation itself. And yet, if you've read anything on the early church fathers and on their interpretation of scripture, I'm just going to warn you now. It's wild. (laughs) There's a lot going on in this wondrous interpretation that Augustine is going to take us through. It's been so easy to miss what Augustine is saying at the end of his confessions. And yet this episode, I want to wrap up where we've been by taking us into the new creation itself that Augustine sees waiting for identity in Genesis 1 to 2. So let's dive in. So before we turn to these final two books of the Confessions, where have we been? I'll admit, through an eclectic and somewhat wide-ranging discussion, it's just been a little exploratory. I I think at some points I've surprised myself in needing to stretch and reach and grow as I've been trying to get my own head around this book, The Confessions. We've gone all the way from the start, where I highlighted the setup to my doctoral work, the setup with this question, why is it that some Christian practices seem so powerful, so capable of shaping and forming who we are, and other Christian practices have so miserably disappointed. And I paired it with this crisis, this current crisis we face in culture, where identity is vastly contested. We're in this deep and rigorous search for authenticity. All of us want to be authentic to who we are. We're in this deep-rooted commitment to freedom, to express ourselves however we want to express ourselves. We're in these deeply contested culture wars, around what expression is permissible, what words are allowed to be used, what identities are allowed to be claimed, defended, and protected. And yet, ultimately, really, if we're being honest, at the end of the day, all of us are confused. I mean, just take something like social media alone and what social media has done to our identities. All of us now live public lives. All of us face the pressures of celebrity besides the rare few who choose not to participate in social media. And yet you're faced with this bind that if you put your life out there publicly, then inevitably you're going to be stretched between the public image you present with the private life you experience that at some level has to have tensions, contradictions, you know, the polished public persona and the private interior world. Or if you choose to not participate in social media, well, then you miss out on the expression and experience of other people, people you probably know and love, who have put their identities on display 
at least some version of their identity for public consumption. It's a very strange and contested time. Our identities are deeply confused. And that doesn't even get into the heart of where Augustine goes, which is this warring nature within ourselves. I sort of gestured towards it in the first couple episodes, and then Augustine begins to unpack it. Augustine starts his confessions with this premise that we are all restless creatures. Our desires are restless. The more I've pondered sins that a person can get swept up into, Let's say a sin like alcoholism or sexual addiction. These sins begin with some inherent need, some inherent longing that is not itself evil. Longing to be known, longing to express yourself, to be in relationship sexually in a sexual sin. Longing even in alcohol for comfort, for relief, for a sort of toning down of existential pressure. Yet in that innate good natural longing, The problem is that that desire, the more it consumes, the more it becomes heightened. In fact, it's kind of like a stomach. The more food you eat, the larger your stomach grows and the more hungry your stomach becomes until it hits this point where the desire has gotten out of your control. You no longer are in control of your stomach. Your stomach is in control of you. And in the out-of-controlness you have in relation to that object, it now no longer is offering you any good. Instead, it controls you. And you begin to realize the thing you were looking for in that object, the love, the connection, or even just the calmness, the ease, is now only attainable at great cost. And even then, when you attain it, almost immediately disappears. In fact, the closer you look at either of those objects, in fact, the closer you look at any good on this earth, the more you realize the satisfaction of whatever desire drew you to that good can only ever be temporary. It cannot last. In that sense, Augustine says, we are all restless creatures. We are all restless. We are restless until we find rest in an object that cannot be consumed or satisfied by its enjoyment and delight. We will not find rest until we find the one Till we find someone, something, that will never run out of what it is offering in its satisfaction of our desire. So that premise sets Augustine and us up for an exploration then of our own identities. Hopefully you've been learning something about Augustine as we've walked through Augustine's own life. Hopefully you've been fascinated by some of the paths Augustine chooses to walk down paths like his relationship to his mother, who has this enduring image of tears over him that the grief, the heartfelt grief that Augustine explodes out with when his friend dies in book four, the pear tree incident where Augustine looks at these sins, these desires in his life that seem to have no purpose at all. They seem to just turn in on themselves and stop and empty themselves out. And Augustine starts to feel this fragmenting of himself as he leans further and further into the sin that he undertook at the pear tree. But then these other paths where Augustine starts to see the life of his mind was incredibly important. The books that he read mattered and distracted him at the same time. The people he met mattered. Things like success and ambition in his career were part of what God was using to draw and shape him, even as they needed to be redirected. They often were frustrated, and they often led him to despair. I think of the drunken beggar 
who gives this sign to Augustine that he's been chasing ambition and success for so long he can't even capture in his career with all of his success what someone with no possessions in just a moment of drunkenness can taste themselves, that, that sweet release of themselves to happiness and delight. Yet far deeper, the growing relationship Augustine begins to have with Scripture again as Augustine encounters this fatherly figure in Ambrose, a profoundly insightful teacher and bishop of God's church. And as Augustine leans more and more in, he begins to discover within himself this battle of his will, his will which wants to be free, wants to be in control of its own fate and destiny, wants to hold on to things like worldly ambition and sexual satisfaction, and yet that Augustine discovers in his life at least that if he's truly going to be free, he is going to have to release the two things which his whole life had mattered most to him in order to receive that far deeper and greater peace, the rest that could be found in God. Now, I don't think what Augustine's trying to say in the framing of his confession, that when you come to Christ, all problems are resolved. But I do think Augustine is framing his identity in such a way that he wants to help you see that if your relationship to Christ, in fact, if your participation in Christ, the sense in which you no longer live for your own freedom, you no longer live in your own autonomy of expression, you in fact no longer live simply for the authenticity of yourself. I think this is actually really important. If that is the case, what Augustine's trying to say is that in Christ, you can actually be freed from all those restless pressures if only you release the very struggles the culture around you is telling you to fulfill in the work of your own identity. The way I've heard it said is that if your identity is in any way tied to what you need to achieve, you will always find yourself falling short of the work required for that identity and the satisfaction of whatever you're trying to achieve always slipping through your hands. But if your identity instead can be received, if someone else can bestow an identity upon you, literally to go back to Augustine's conversion when under the fig tree, when he picks up and reads the book of Romans and sees, put on Christ. That for Augustine is the invitation of identity. If you can begin with that foundation of identity, well, now you can work back through and you can confess. You can confess all of the failed directions, including even Augustine's abstractions into reflections on memory and time. The whole work of the confessions is, in fact, a confession, right? It's a failing of oneself. It's, it's this recognition that all attempts at identity will fail. All of my future attempts will fail. All of my present attempts that I'm undertaking, they're going to fail. All my past attempts. Literally, Augustine writes a book about confessions as a confession because Augustine sees this too is a confession. I'm not going to be able to even leave unconfessed an attempt to reflect on my confessions. That's just the essence, the, the foundation, the pillar of grace that defines Augustine's work. But if that's the case, confessions also can become a confession of praise. This is a gift of gratitude Augustine is receiving as he reframes all of his memories, his core memories of identity. Augustine starts to notice, you were there. God, you were there when that happened. You were there in that early childhood moment. 
you were there in those first glimpses of glory, as I Gustin literally talks about, an award he won in class, right? You were there. You were calling me forward. You were there when I moved to Rome. You were there when I decided to leave Rome and move to Milan. In fact, you were there when my mother was crying. You were there when my friend died. You were there, Lord. You were there as I sat under Ambrose. You were there. You were there, Lord, as I left my teaching post. You were there. That is a profound outpouring of praise. It's, it's the gift. It's the gift of gratitude that a confession draws forth. If, if you're confessing your own failings, you also get to confess with gratitude all of your gifts, all of the wonderful gifts you've received as you've opened your hands to receive this identity you now possess in Christ through God. Finally, if it's failings, if it's praise, confessions are then ultimately an ongoing act of dependency in faith. I think this is the heartbeat of identity, although we don't always know how to connect. We don't know how to make the stability of our identity in Christ connected to that stable heartbeat of faith. That ultimately, as you search the New Testament, faith is a gift. Faith is something you received, but then faith is also, it is an engagement of our deepest essence in the heart. It's this act of relentless dependency. Is it possible that your identity is an act of faith? That in order to receive Christ, you must continually put your faith not back in yourself, but continually, repeatedly come back to Christ. Keep on putting on Christ. Return to Christ over and over and over again. Come back in this confession of faith again and again and again. I am not my own. I am not my own master. I am not the Lord and Savior of my world. I have, in fact, faith in another. It is in Christ that I have died. And therefore, it is in Christ that I may now live. I think if we can piece together the heartbeat of confession, we begin to see the genius and, more importantly, the gift of what Augustine is trying to frame for us in our own identities. There is work to be done. Each of us have work we need to do around our identities. If we follow Augustine's example, we need to return to our memories. We need to go back and we need to confess our way through our memories, not in a shameful, head-hung, despising of ourself, but also not in a grandiose celebration of every moment of our lives. Instead, a confession of faith is a marching back through our memories to arrive, to arrive at the place where we put on Christ and where we now live in Christ, where we keep working Christ out through the ongoing present, through the work of our current cultural moment where we engage now with the identities we have not achieved, but the identities that we have been given. If Christians could follow Augustine in the present in such a work, then I think we would have something to witness to culture. And I'm not saying that that's a simple solution. I'm not saying that that gives us immediate or clarifying direction in how to navigate the culture wars and the heavy influence of post-modernity and late modernity and all of the other ideologies and thought patterns and social media that we're all currently swimming through. It's not going to be easy, but there has been one who has been before who is offering us some guidance now. So if that's the case, if that's me trying to catch us up, I want to close this final episode by reflecting on where Augustine closes his confessions. So I mentioned last episode Augustine gets a lot of flack 
Understandably so. I'm fine giving Augustine flack. He gets a lot of flack because instead of offering an easy devotional primer to be passed down through the generations where he reflects on a, an easy to understand story of his life and sort of beautifully and poetically wraps up all of the Broadway themes, all of the initial opening motifs come to a glorious chorale of conclusion. Augustine instead pivots at book 10 hard into some of the deepest abstractions, but I would argue essential questions of identity that continue to perplex philosophers and physicists and psychologists to this day. So last episode, we covered the heavy hitting ones, memory and time. Well, in the final two books, book 12 and book 13, Augustine is going to turn from memory and time back very intentionally to the book of Genesis. Now, he was just in his reflections on time beginning to go back to creation itself. So you almost sense him realize, if I'm going all the way back to the beginning, I've got to go back to the one who made time. And if I go back to the one who made time, well, then I need to go all the way back to Genesis 1. From there, he's going to move into this reflection on Genesis 1 and 2. And here's my best attempt at a sophisticated, nuanced explanation. If I were to tell you why I think Augustine closes with an interpretation of Genesis 1 to 2, the theological answer is this. I think Augustine was not a Protestant he was not an evangelical. He doesn't need to be co-opted by either the Protestant or the evangelical tradition. But I think Augustine very clearly was a deep and profound lover of scripture. And what Augustine begins to see towards the end of his confessions that he wants to teach us to see is that for all of the words we can pour forth about our own identity, and as powerful and formative as words can be, I mean, words can name they can structure, they can order reality itself. That's what all our language is doing. Even if that's the case, Augustine realizes that ultimately, human words are always going to fail to peer into the mysteries, the mysteries of God, and more foundationally, the mysteries of creation itself. So here's where Augustine goes that I'll be the first to acknowledge is not easy reading and is, from a practical pastoral standpoint, probably the hardest part to access in his confessions, which is why it often gets the least amount of attention. In book 12, Augustine is going to start talking about God making heaven and earth. And as he starts talking about it, he immediately is going to get swept in to a major exegetical battle, a controversy that's been going on in his day. The battle was what it meant that God made heaven and God made earth. And what Augustine essentially proposes is that when God says God made earth, Augustine thinks what God is doing is creating the formlessness. So this infinite formless matter, almost like a potter who has spread all the molecules out but that have not yet been sorted, spread out, and put in their proper place. So that's God made the earth. When it says God made heaven, Augustine is suggesting God made the heaven of heavens. That is, heavens could mean sky, right? Because in the ancient world, there was the earth and then there was the heavens, and we still to this day sometimes refer to the heavens. But Augustine is going to be more theological than that and is suggesting that when it says God made heaven and God made earth, God made the formless, empty material of matter, the molecules spread out across the universe, and God made the heavens of heavens, that is the place where the presence and the glory of God and eventually the angels themselves will dwell. And Augustine, as he's wrestling through this, gets into this pretty abstract place where he starts to say the heaven of heavens is actually the intellect, the intellectual life. Uh, the, in some ways, this is mapping onto Plato's forms. 
So, so I've referenced Plato at a number of points through this. It is helpful to know Plato to get into Augustine's thoughts, but the simpleness of it is the heaven of heavens is the place where God's dwelling, his beauty, his goodness, his truth is emanating from. And so it's, it's what's calling to us. And Augustine's trying to locate it somewhere because God, to Augustine, God is outside of both. God is not actually contained within the heaven of heavens, as in God cannot exist if he's not in the heaven of heavens, nor is God clearly contained in the earth. God is above and beyond. He's the creator of the earth. So Augustine's going through all this, and clearly it matters in the controversies of his day. Clearly, as I go through all that, it probably doesn't matter to how you have slowed down to spend time with the heavens and the earth. Now, where I think it it actually can matter for identity is that Augustine is essentially setting up two stable reference points in his understanding of creation. One stable reference point is that God creates for us the stability of the heaven of heavens, the stability of God's beauty and glory, which is drawing us forward. Augustine will often talk about the pilgrimage to the new Jerusalem, the sense in which the city of our home, the city of rest, beckons us. And Augustine is telling us that is heaven. That's the heaven of heavens. Now, clearly that's going to become the new heavens and the new earth, the place and point where God's new creation is going to intersect with our own reality and we will dwell with God. For Augustine, it's all there. It really matters because it is very objective. It is concrete. It was there from the beginning. It is a reference point. If our last episode, we talked about time and the need for a stable reference point. The heaven of heavens is our identity's reference point. And for Augustine, it's very consistent. It's very clear. He's going to work that out through his whole theological system. Equally, if the heaven of heavens is a stable reference point, the formlessness of earth, the sense in which entropy and decay and nothingness is the state that earth itself began in, well, that too is a stable, helpful reference point to understand for Augustine. This at least is what I think Augustine's doing. This is, again, these are deep waters. These are deep waters that Augustine's swimming in, that I'm swimming in as an interpreter of Augustine. I think he's putting the formlessness of earth out there because Augustine sees in his understanding of sin and evil that if God is good and if all goodness is derived from God, if all goodness is coming from the heaven of heavens, and if therefore anything that we see as good on this earth, including broken things, good but broken things, are containing some reference to the goodness of the heaven of heavens, to the goodness of God himself, then evil and sin for Augustine is not a separate object or reality, is not an opposing force, is not a competing reality, but is instead itself the breaking down, the emptying, and the chaotic formlessness of non-reality, of goodness that is depleted, or maybe as one of the most overly simplistic explanations I've heard would say, of metal with rust. That goodness is the metal and evil is the rust. Rust is decayed metal. It's, It's not, in fact, anything in and of itself. It's just metal that has decayed, metal that has entropied into nothingness. That's what evil is doing. That's what our identities do when we participate in sin. We empty ourselves of God. We empty ourselves of reality, of beauty, of goodness, of truth. And therefore, what Augustine is setting up is an understanding of creation that sees the heaven of heavens not in contrast, that sees the heaven of heavens as the stable beacon of God's presence in creation, and the earth as beginning before God 
in its natural state to be the formlessness and the darkness of non-existence apart from God. Now, that, that is a very interesting theological proposal. That is a complex thought, and yet I think it has a lot of weight in how Augustine's been understanding his own life and his own story. I think it could even have weight in how you understand your own life and your own story. The movement towards yourself, which is the return to a state of formlessness, or the movement of being reformed and refashioned back to God. Clearly, as Augustine says all of this, he is pushing back against the Manichees, which were the sect, the sort of subversive sect of Christianity that presented all life as dualistic. He's pushing back a bit against the Donatists, who are also going to be their own sect of Christianity in Africa that will have a really strong presence throughout the rest of his life that he's going to spend a lot of time refuting. He's pushing back against the Platonists. He's reforming Platonic thought and Stoic thought and all the rest. But ultimately, he acknowledges, as he's moving through Book 12, that he also is in disagreement with a number of other Catholic Christians, Catholic being simply the universal Christians, the, the church that was throughout Rome, the one true church. So Augustine starts to notice there's these other critics, they're pushing back against him. In the second half of Book 12, Augustine is going to spend a lot of time, I think quite beautifully, I, I think actually in our present moment, while a lot of Book 12 is hard to move through, the second half of Book 12 would actually encourage you and perhaps even put a smile on your lips. Augustine starts to explain how he would respond to his fellow Christian critics who disagree with him on his interpretation. And he essentially says this. He says, first of all, do you agree with me on essentials in the Orthodox faith? So do you agree with me that God is triune? Do you agree with me that his son, Jesus Christ, became incarnate? as our Lord and Savior, do you agree with me that these scriptures, these scriptures are the word of God, that God has given us these scriptures to know and be in relationship with God? If you say yes to all of that, Augustine says, well, great, we're together on that, and you simply just have a different understanding of heaven and earth, if maybe the earth you see as a more fully formed version of earth, not a formlessness, if the heavens you think mean simply the sky here, or perhaps refers to some specific aspect of God's presence or dwelling, or you conceptualize heaven as meaning a specific good that the Lord is beckoning us with, or maybe you don't agree with this whole two-directional movement thing of movement towards formlessness or movement towards beauty and goodness and truth. Augustine says, if, if that's where you're at and you disagree with that, well, let me ask you this. Is it possible that Moses, Augustine assumes here that we all agree Moses wrote the book of Genesis, which I get is contested now, but if we're going with him in this, if Moses wrote this book, is it possible that Moses could have meant more than one thing when he wrote, God made heaven and earth? Augustine says, yeah, the way words work, words can mean many things at the same time. That's the beauty of words. So if Augustine could mean many things, is it possible we're both right? Is it possible that there's a truth, what Moses intended to say, but is it possible that Moses and his intention could have been saying multiple things? And is it possible that both of us could therefore, within reason, I mean, going off of the true objective of what Moses, or if you don't believe Moses wrote Genesis, the editor of Genesis intended, is it possible that we could all be right here? about a meaning that God intended for us to be able to use for our own spiritual nourishment and good. Yeah, Augustine says, I, I, I think that's possible. So if that's possible, he says, then is it possible that some of us could be closer to the right meaning and some of us could be wrong? Well, yeah, I think that's possible. But if that's possible that there is a true meaning to scripture, that there could be multiple meanings that we could all be right, 
or some of us could be right and some of us could be wrong, or maybe even we all could be wrong. If that's all possible, well then, Augustine has this beautiful conclusion where he says, well then I think I have to submit myself to God, praying that he confirms the rightness of what is right and retrains me in the wrongness of what is wrong, and that you, fellow interpreter, can do the same together with me in the harmony of the body of Christ. That we, essentially, together, can interpret the scripture. We can agree and disagree. We can seek truth together. We can correct each other when off and when wrong. Yet we can essentially return together to dwell in the safety of humility. That if we agree, the scriptures can have many meanings, even as we seek the true meaning of scripture as intended by the one God revealed scripture through, whether it be the author or the editor or Moses himself or whoever it is. If we can agree on that, then together we can seek the face of God, seek the truth of who God is in a hermeneutic, in a posture, in a interpretive stance of love. Isn't that extraordinary? Wouldn't that be something if all disagreements among Christians could follow that frame of reference? If all disagreements among the faithful could still find the shared unity of humility and love for Christ, the end of book 12 is phenomenal. What I love about it is that Augustine takes time out of his confessions as he's walking us through the actual process of interpreting scripture to reflect with us, can we do this better? Can we do this together? Can we wrestle with mysteries and seek truth together? It's classic Augustine. It's typical throughout his thoughts. It, it's one of the best aspects of him. So that's book 12. Now, here is where Augustine chooses to end it. After all of this work that he's done, after all this moving through Genesis, after even all of this qualification as he's working through, what does it mean to seek the true meaning of the scriptures? What does it mean to press into God's word together? He's going to finally end in book 13 with some confidence where he says, let me take you through the first seven days of creation. Let me show you why this matters for the story and the confessions that I've taken you on. And essentially what Augustine does is this. He moves through the seven days, and in moving through the seven days, he is going to see each of the seven days as a figure of the new creation that we get to experience in Christ. Now, this is just the tiny bit technical and confusing. And this is where a lot of the conversation, even debate, has taken place in evangelical circles where I come from, uh, more broadly even in, in the scholarship on ancient patristic interpretation of the Bible. What used to take place from the Protestant Reformation onwards was often a dismissal that people like Augustine, and especially the early commentator Origen, were just running ramshot across the Bible with what was often derided as an allegorical approach. So an allegory, the taking of a narrative or a straightforward story, but understanding that all of the signs and symbols of that story are actually referring to something else, something more meta, something above and beyond. I think of Pilgrim's Progress, where we're, we read the story of this guy named Pilgrim, and quite literally his name is told to us as Pilgrim, and yet you kind of quickly understand Oh, he's meant to represent a pilgrim. That's what they're doing in this allegory. Uh, that's where the allegorical interpretation label came from. And it was kind of just applied by the Protestant reformers over the early church. It was pretty thoroughly dismissed as a very loose way of understanding the Old Testament especially. And you do find the allegorical excesses across the early church for sure. 
where the early church interpreters were moving through all the pockets of the Old Testament and they were just finding Christ everywhere. So the best ones come from the recent study we did on the Song of Songs where some of the early church fathers, including Augustine, would read the Song of Songs describing the twin breasts of the lover who are like a gazelle and the interpreter will say, well, clearly this is meant to represent the two testaments, Old and New Testament, which the Christian is meant to cup in love, desire, and pursuit, right? The Protestant reformers were like, yeah, we're not into this anymore. And a lot of contemporary scholarship up through evangelical circles has also been like, hard pass. We're not interested in that kind of approach. While there's lots of merit to tamping down and reflecting on how the patristics did scholarship, I think the growing realization, even in evangelical circles that I've run in, even in very conservative evangelical circles, has been the recognition that we actually probably did not do a very good job of getting into the nuance and subtleties of why the early church cared so much about this approach what we often label as an allegorical approach. And in actuality, some of the better work recently on what was actually taking place in their interpretation has shifted from labeling it as allegorical to labeling it as figural, figural interpretation. The insight of figural interpretation is simply to give the early church credit that probably more than the overly confident reformers who thought that they, and let's take a hard swipe at Calvin, who I do love. I think Calvin is a phenomenal theologian, just exploding with creativity and insights and all the rest. But I mean, Calvin and so many of his followers created quite rigid structures, institutes, doctrines that they claimed were purely derived from the scriptures. When in fact, you'd look more closely and you just begin to realize it, like how rigid can we really be with an interpretation of words that themselves require more words to interpret? Theologies are written about theologies that are then written about more theologies that then claim that they're just a biblical theology, but in actuality are influenced by everything from the language they're written in to the cultural context they find themselves in to the theological traditions and ideas that they've inherited and been influenced by. I mean, can any of us really find ourselves at a purely biblical description of the world? No, I, I think the point of the Holy Spirit and the church and the handing down of tradition is that we are always receiving, we are always contextualizing, and then we are always passing on that which we have received, hopefully, as faithfully and as truthfully as we possibly can. But if that's the insight, then figural interpretation has noted that church fathers very intentionally are looking at the words of the Old Testament and are asking how the Spirit of God might be opening up figures or types of meaning that can be located in the expanding revelation of the New Testament that specifically can be located in the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. And that if, if the Old Testament is connected in that way to the New Testament, then the figure of the language of the Old Testament becomes a means of opening us up to the meaning of Christ that is now being worked back into not just the Old Testament itself, but into our own lives. So Augustine is essentially going to do this. He's going to look at the seven days of creation. And when he looks at the seven days of creation, as he moves through each day, he's going to begin to see that God is giving us a figure, a type, 
in the seven days of creation into an insight of what in Jesus Christ will become the seven days of new creation, culminating, Augustine will say, in the new creation of the church. So Augustine moves through the creation of heavens and earth, and he says that when God spread the heavens across the sky, separating the sky from the earth, what God is doing is spreading his word across the sky. He sees scripture there in day two as the vault of heaven. It's quite beautiful as Augustine poetically waxes on about it. When God separates the sea from the land, Augustine's going to say the sea is the bitterness and chaos of nothingness, and yet the land is there, the, the steadfast stability of one's soul in God. I mean, you hear identity work here Augustine's doing, that the land is where the fruits of righteousness, anytime in Christ we produce good fruit. This is the land that God was separating and preparing. It's, it's all a bit of a stretch, sure, but this is, this is Augustine trying to get at the theological understanding of how God is ordering and structuring new creation in us, in Christ. He even beautifully sees that when God populates the sea with creatures, well, Augustine just said the sea was quite bitter. It's, it's the place of emptiness and nothingness. But Augustine sees even there in the nothingness of the sea, the creatures that are there are offered as signs and sacraments, Augustine will even say. And he'll say when God puts the lights in the sky, that the lights up from the vaults of heaven as signs, the creatures there in the earth below, even as new creation is bubbling up on the land that God has created, all of it are signs and sacraments pointing us to God. So Augustine is saying there's no place in any of the world where there is not an intermingling of old creation and new creation, where the nothingness of sin does not touch upon the life-giving potential of stable land in Christ, and where even in the dark recesses of the sea, God is placing ministers of light quite literally signs of the new creation to witness to God and what God is doing in Jesus Christ anywhere that creation is to be found. So then when it comes to day six, Augustine sees the creation of Adam and Eve, but specifically their task to be fruitful and multiply. Augustine sees there in the bestowal of God's image upon Adam and Eve being a figural type of the restoring of the image of God in Jesus Christ to the men and women, to the saints who are found in Jesus, and that as the image is restored within them, they are given the call to go forth and to be fruitful and to multiply to spread the image of Christ out into the creation, to take it with them, to grow up and cultivate these new fruits of righteousness across the land, new fruits of God's glory and wonder and praise, but also to go out and bear forth new life, to bring forth both new saints in Christ, to bring forth children in Christ, to bring forth new creation itself across the land wherever their hands work. Now, like I said, all that explanation to say, you don't have to take up Augustine's stance of figural interpretation. And if I preach this on a Sunday morning, I think a lot of people in my congregation would get a little confused and would be a little disturbed. And I'd have to give a lot of context why I'm doing what I'm doing. And it would make less sense today than it made in Augustine's time. But I do think there's something beautiful in learning from the church fathers. I want to be humble enough 
to hear just because I live in a day and age that can reference my Hebrew lexicon, that can talk about the socio-cultural insights and findings into the Old Testament, that can offer you a literary analysis of the Song of Songs or the Book of Job or the Book of Revelation. For as powerful and potent as all of that interpretation can be, and hopefully for the insights that a podcast like The Burning Word could draw forth from the Word of God, I am humbled to sit at the feet of a master who himself dwelt in the words of God to the point where God's word flows off his lips, to the point where this whole confession has been shaped and structured by the word of God, to the point where Augustine's imagination is so seeped through with Christ and with the language of the scriptures that as he takes Christ with him to inhabit the book of Genesis, he sees all kinds of new connections and new revelations into how his life in his own new creation can be directed by Christ. Now here, let me end this episode by taking you with me to sit at the master's feet. And here's where Augustine closes not only his interpretation of Genesis 1 to 2, but his whole confessions. He says this, your creation sings praise to you so that we may love you. And we love you so that praise may be offered to you by your creation. Created things have their beginning and their end in time, their rising and setting, their growth and decline, their beauty of form and their formlessness. And thus they have their morning and evening, though sometimes this is hidden, sometimes plainly seen. Inevitably so, because they were made by you out of nothing, not made from you, nor from any matter not of your making, nor from anything preexistent, but from concreated matter, that is, matter which you created formless at the same instant that you gave it form without any interval. Although the primal matter of heaven and earth is something other than the form of heaven and earth, you made their matter from nothingness and their formed condition from unformed matter, and both simultaneously, so that form followed on the heels of matter without the least interruption or lapse of time. If this is Augustine's reflection on what he's trying to draw forth, the simultaneousness in which formless pulls against form, but in which God recreates that from nothingness which did not used to be, there is still one final day that Augustine has not yet returned to, and with the whole context of this episode, the journey we've been on in our identities and confessions, could there be any more profound way for Augustine to close his own work than saying this? Give us peace. Lord God, for you have given us all else. Give us the peace that is repose, the peace of the Sabbath, and the peace that knows no evening. The whole order of exceedingly good thing, intensely beautiful as it is, will pass away when it has served its purpose. These things too will have their morning and their evening. But the seventh day, the day of Sabbath, has no evening and sinks towards no sunset, for you sanctified it that it might abide forever. After completing your exceedingly good works, you rested on the seventh day, though you achieved them in repose, and you willed your book to tell us this as a promise that when our works are finished, works exceedingly good inasmuch as they are your gift to us, we too may rest in you in the Sabbath, of eternal life. And then you will rest in us as now you work in us 
and your rest will be rest through us, as now those works of yours are wrought through us. But you yourself, Lord, you are ever working, ever resting. You neither see for a time, nor change for a time, nor enjoy repose for a time, yet you create our temporal seeing in time itself and our repose after time. Once our heart had conceived by your Spirit, we made a fresh start and began to act well, though at an earlier stage we'd been impelled to wrongdoing and abandon you. But you, O God, undivided and good, have never ceased to act well. Some of our works are indeed good, thanks to your gift, but they will not last forever. And when they are done, we hope that we shall rest in your immense holiness. But you, the supreme good, need no other good and are eternally at rest because you yourself are your rest. What human can empower another human to understand these things? What angel can grant understanding to another angel? What angel to a human? Let us rather ask of you, seek in you, Knock at your door. Only so will we receive. Only so find. And only so will the door be open to us. With that, Augustine closes his work. I don't know about you, but I, as I was reading this again recently, just had another one of those aha moments that you only get when you really were fully in a masterpiece that was bookended from start to end. I had always heard at the beginning of the Confessions the quote that our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. But like a naive theologian, I had never fully grasped that Augustine, writing that initial line, had already traveled in his heart to the beginning of Genesis had already seen the glimpse, the sign of the seventh day, the sign of the Sabbath, the sign of rest from work, the sign of God at rest, even as there is no evening and no morning at the end of the seventh day, even as the seventh day seems to go on in the mind of Genesis, seems to go on in the mind of Moses as he reflects on the creation account Even as the author of Hebrews will later say, you yourself in Christ were intended to enter into that rest which God had promised for his people Israel. Augustine is holding this theme and scope of rest. And from the very beginning of his confessions, he will hope for the sign that was already waiting there for him in the beginning of creation. A sign that we too could rest if only we rest. In Christ. When it comes to your identity, I am sure you, like Augustine, will have much further to go wherever you're at listening to this podcast now. Augustine would write the confessions in his 40s in the prime of his ministry. Certainly, the confessions made him really well known, but Augustine had another 30 years stretched out in front of him. He had sermon upon sermon to deliver. He had letters to write. He had immense treaties. He had not yet picked up his pen to take on the city of God, which would become his magnum opus of culture and politics and apologetics and theological vision of a pilgrim's journey back to God. He would not yet take up his pen to write his monumental On the Trinity, the the book that arguably has shaped and predominated Western, in fact, really all Orthodox thought around who the Trinity is, how to articulate the Trinity, vision of the Trinity. Yet importantly, Augustine in his own lifetime, after much wrestling, 
after many controversies, after many debates, after rigorous polemics against the Donatists and Pelagius and an attempt to really stretch out and understand a theological structure that would shape hundreds and thousands of years of theology going all the way to today. At the end, Augustine would be in his room, sick and dying, having lived single, celibate since his conversion, having served as a bishop of the church in Hippo, a small backwater port that in many ways was insignificant. And as he lay dying in his room, the vandals who had burned Rome the barbarians, as they were called, who were, who were pillaging their way through Africa and who were causing a lot of chaos and uncertainty about their future, were pressed all the way up against Hippo itself. Hippo would soon fall after Augustine's death to the Vandals, uh, to those who were invading. Augustine would find himself reading and confessing the Psalms. In fact, his biographer says that he, he, had, the songs, he had the Psalms spread up against the walls and the ceiling of his room, parchment of the Psalms. And as he receded from life, Augustine was just reciting these words of the scriptures. He was confessing. He was confessing his identity. My hope for you is that wherever you're at, this journey may have been a helpful one to affirm that yes, there is indeed a crisis. In fact, the crisis runs far deeper than our culture would like to admit. It is impossible for you to know yourself fully. You cannot contain, you cannot master your own identity, but, but in the despair of the infinite abyss of nothingness that your identity is constantly being pulled apart into, there within yourself you find the call of rest from God. A God who invites you to receive an identity in Christ, to put on Christ so that you're striving, so that the labor and work of your hands could be stilled. And that there in Christ, you could finally, finally find with Augustine the peace and the rest of that seventh day of creation that God intended for your soul all along. This has been John Perrine with The Burning Word. We look forward to seeing you again in a new study soon, but until then, grace and peace.